This is Binod Shankar and you're listening to the Real Finance Mentor podcast from the realfinancementor.com. The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. I would think why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it one relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical practical issues. Number 2, authentic. No bullshit, no sidestepping. The topics, guests and questions are all from that perspective. And number 3, take a chartered accountant CFA charter holder, add 17 plus years as a corporate warrior, mix in 10 years of entrepreneurship, through a decade of full-time CFA training, add speaking, mentoring, cycling and mountaineering, and that's me. Welcome to the real finance mentor, or as I call it, RFM. Hi everyone this is Binod Shankar here with the Real Finance Mentor podcast the podcast that brings you inspiration for your careers today i have a guest with me who comes from a completely different uh, background and experience which is why i want him on the show and we are going to delve into some fascinating topics um revolving around mental health and careers and um, how to manage yourself in turbulent times Uh, my guest today is uh, Harbinder Sangha Harbinder is based in the UK um in terms of his education he left school with GCSEs then went to college and studied in leisure and tourism he spent nearly two decades in sales and recruitment working for Porsche Hayes recruitment and Randstad which are all last two our top recruitment firms with a global presence um Harbinder is um an NLP practitioner he loves fast cars travel sports learning and personal development and is a bit of a traveler who enjoys visiting the middle east mainland spain and canada harbinder has been 14 and a half years clean and sober and we'll come to this journey interesting journey of his and is a father to his son dilan the husband to cam harbinder welcome to the show Thank you Bernard it's a real pleasure to be with you this morning and thanks for the invitation it's really appreciated Let's dive into the crux of things can you explain to the listeners Harbinder what exactly is generational trauma also referred to as intergenerational trauma transgenerational trauma and inherited trauma it seems like a fancy term but actually it describes something that's quite common isn't it It certainly is. I mean, if we take trauma, for instance, it, it's unique to each individual. You know, what affects you, you know, may not affect me. Um, it's it's really about the environments that we grow up in, and and you know, it creates our expectations for life. And if our ex- expectations are not met, that causes us to feel trauma. Um, trauma can also be passed from our parents. You know, while we're in the womb. Uh, most people aren't aware of that you know we absorb energy and if our mother is having difficulties you know during pregnancy you know is suffering with substances or her own anxieties we absorb this while we're in the womb and this normally leads to things like you know anxiety disorders adhd you know very anxious children who seem very dependent you know on their parents you know etc Uh, generational trauma is also known as generational dysfunction uh, for instance you know my parents come from india so you know if if their if their needs in india their basic needs were clothing food water 
you know, they will ensure that their priority for their children is, you know, so they their children don't suffer will be to provide those basic needs. And that becomes their priority. Now, as a child, if, if I want, say, nurture, love, cuddles, kisses, hugs, you know, my expectations aren't met. And I can find myself, you know, looking at my parents and judging them, you know, they didn't love me, you know, and this breeds, uh, you know, breeds resentment and frustration. And, and, and that causes trauma in me. I, I hope that sort of makes sense. Yes, it does. But if it's so pervasive and so devastating, why do we hear so little of this from people we know, friends, relatives, colleagues, or in the media? Um, it's a really good question. I mean, I think people are now, you know, starting to talk about it. You know, we're just about 50 or 60 years too late. Uh, I mean, there's a huge drive at the moment by the World Health Organization. You know, they have a campaign promoting mental health strategies to improve it. I mean, currently there's about a billion people globally, uh, you know, according to the stats who are suffering with mental health. So it's being recognized. Unfortunately for our parents, if their parents didn't understand they had mental health or they had trauma or they had stuff, the chance of them passing on that knowledge to us is very unlikely. Culturally, in my experience, we are very similar to the British. You know, we have a stiff upper lip. We don't show weakness and we continue existing in life, feeling lost, confused, frustrated. But we're just too proud to talk about it. Mm. I mean, you have counseled quite a few people these days who have undergone or are currently undergoing, undergoing this trauma, right? Can you give three examples of this trauma, of course, while respecting confidentiality, so that this abstract sounding issue comes alive to the listeners? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, you know, I think, I think one of the, the, the biggest things that, that I come across, um, certainly with female clients of mine, is, is, is freedom. You know, simply women are treated very differently from us men. You know, women are restricted. You know, they're often disempowered uh, and they're mostly treated like, you know, a cleaner, you know, cook or maid. Uh, now, generationally, this is what I saw and many of my friends saw as kids growing up. So when I conduct a relationship at some level, I feel I must be the main, you know, breadwinner or earner, provider. Uh, and, my, and my wife, you know, must be, you know, must work part time or not at all. Uh, and I spend a lot of time, you know, empowering women, um, you know, if they're suffering with mental health, it's normally, you know, that, that at some level they feel less than, um, you know, not good enough or feel controlled financially and emotionally by their partners. You know, there's men too, you know, you know, men, you know, a lot of the men I find it really hard to open up. You know, they would rather avoid their reality than face it. They often have an addiction to work, money, substances, alcohol, you know, the gym, you know, even sex, you know, with multiple partners. But inside, all that external stuff doesn't quite fill the void inside. Um, you know, and, and when they finally do start to talk, they're normally very sad about their own upbringing, uh, you know, the lack of love or affection that they received, you know, the lack of praise, which is a huge thing and the feeling of not being good enough. And at some level, they've become, you know, the parents that they 
have issues with or despise at some level. Uh, and they compensate by earning more money or the next promotion or getting drunk and not taking responsibility. You know, the problem is not external, it's an internal issue. And that needs to be fixed. And, and thirdly, you know, you know, I, I see a lot of things, you know, we, we you know, a lot of things out there. We, we defend our parents because of, you know, our pride and, you know, and, and we might intellectually understand that our parents carry their own trauma or dysfunction, but we lie to protect them. You know, we defend them and their prehistoric views or their cultural ideals, and we hide behind the culture and the tradition. But your parents had their chance and they chose their own path. You know, it could be an abusive marriage, a dead-end job, a boss they couldn't stand, or the stresses. Uh, that they didn't put down you know that doesn't have to be the same for you you can choose what's best for you and your family you know where living in the present is what's important of course uh, Harbinder you are aware of all this and you can speak with credibility because you were yourself once a victim of generational trauma tell us about Absolutely. how it all started and what went on in your family well, you know, I, I mean, my parents came over from India in the 60s, 1960s. You know, they were heavily dependent on family and friends and the community. You know, alcoholism was, was a big problem. Uh, it was hidden. You know, mental health was, was unheard of back then. Uh, and I suffered, you know, I suffered in the environment I grew up in, you know, in the home that I lived in from verbal and physical abuse. You know, this caused immense trauma in me. I remember being five or six years old thinking, our house is weird, you know, why can't our, we be like our neighbours who seem normal? Uh, but the same dysfunction was going on up and down the street at varying levels. Uh, and I felt I'd be judged, you know, that, that, that you know, by, by my friends at school, you know, if they knew what my family was like, um, you know, but I learned very quickly, you know, that, that sweets and candy was a great diversion, you know, for me talking about what was going on at home. So what was the effect of all this dysfunction on you? I want you to break this down in terms of the cognitive, emotional and physical impact over the many years, if you could. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, I suffered from a young age, you know, with, with, with anxiety. You know, I just remember I would get these knots in my tongue. You know, so I suffered with depression, anxiety, low self-worth, you know, really low self-esteem, you know, and, and in the end, you know, addiction to alcohol and drugs to cope, you know, mentally, I, was, I always felt less than, I never felt good enough. And I'd have, as I mentioned, these knots in my stomach, you know, which today I understand was, you know, the fear and anxiety that I was suffering. Uh, before I got sober and clean, you know, I, I felt suicidal, you know, and, and I contemplated the idea, the idea of killing myself, probably on a daily basis. You know, thankfully I didn't, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be here with you today. Uh, but emotionally I was in bits. You know, I always felt scared, never felt assured of anything, felt guilt, shame, regret and remorse for the things that I was doing while under the influence. I was always angry and resentful. And every now and again I could, you know, I could breathe and I felt reasonably okay. But this was, you know, normal to me and I felt, you know, life was very hard, you know, physically. I never felt good enough. You know, my body could always be and look better. 
you know, I was abusing my internal organs with alcohol and drugs. You know, my mate would, you know, my, my, my weight you know, would, would balloon up and down. You know, it would go up, it would go down. Um, my body hurt, my internal organs were telling me to slow down, but alcohol and drugs took the pain away, you know, of living this way. Uh, physically, the levels of depression and anxiety was killing me. You know, thankfully, I'm a million mile, you know, miles away from that life now. Exactly. So what is truly impressive, Arbinder, is how you've turned your life around. I mean, look at you now, right? I mean, you own a good living, you own a home, you're happily married, you have a seven-year-old son, you help others, um, all of which probably looked impossible to you and the people who knew you not too far back. This could easily have gone on and perhaps even affected your children as um, generational trauma often does. So my question is, what was the watershed moment when you said enough was enough? Now, I remember this one really well. Bernard. You know, I, I remember back in 2007, it was the, the 19th of September. It was a Wednesday night and I'm sitting in my local pub. You know, I'm drunk. And I get a call from my girlfriend at the time, you know, and she said, where are you? You know, and before I could answer, you know, she said, you're in the pub, I can hear. You know, how many have you had? Before I could answer, she said, you're going to probably lie anyway, because I always lied. Uh, and and she, she basically said that she couldn't do this anymore. And she told me to check my emails. I managed to, to, to read an email that, that she sent and it absolutely broke me. I mean, she'd verbalized this stuff on many occasions of how she was feeling and what I was doing to her. But, you know, I, 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 I just didn't, you know, I was always sort of ratcheting up the next response to, 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 you know, her issues, you know, what she was saying. So, you know, she spoke about her love for me, you know, how much she cared about me and she could see the good in me, but she was getting tired of the daily abuse and the arguments uh, she wrote about my father and his alcoholism. She spoke about, you know, the, the emotional roller coaster ride she'd been on and how I was slowly, you know, breaking her down from a happy, strong, independent woman to a paranoid, angry, scared wreck. You know, thinking about that email still, you know, chokes me up today. You know, I, I cried while I read that email, you know, and I cried all the way home. You know, my journey, you know, in recovery started on the 20th of September and you know that was over 14 and a half years ago uh, and I'm so grateful for for her strength and courage. Hmm. During your chat you mentioned that it's quite tough to let go of the bitterness and resentment and that letting that go requires you to forgive and that what follows is accountability because now you can no longer play the safe game of blaming your parents for your present situation and wallowing in self-pity. And you now need to take charge of your life. Mm. So what are three ways in which you drove yourself to take responsibility? Ways that probably others in similar situations can, can look at? Yeah, I mean, for me, pain was the main driver. You know, I was sick of the pain, you know, that pitiful existence I was living. You know, I was sick of the ground dog day and the, and the way I felt, you know, how I was treating those closest to me, you know, my mum, my grand, my brother, my sister, my partner, you know, life was a mess. You know, I was close to £40,000 in debt, you know, hanging on to a job by the skin of my teeth. My relationship was in a terrible state with my girlfriend. 
And, you know, and she was about to leave me and I was sick of the, of my behavior. You know, I was feeling suicidal and I had no hope, you know, pain drove me to seek help. You know, once my support network was in place, it made my journey much easier. Uh, I knew that I didn't want to go back. You know, I was sick and tired of feeling that way. I wasn't going to let myself or others down. You know, nobody was going to tell me, I told you so. I knew you couldn't make it. So I pushed on. You know, I was feeling better and I wanted that to continue. My head was getting clearer and my heart felt lighter. And I had some hope. You know, I tapped into spirituality through AA and this really helped. And I used the resource around me and, and humbled myself. You know, that was a big challenge to humble myself, you know, ask for help. And one day at a time, you know, anything is possible. You know, I'm living proof of that. Hmm. Talking about AA, uh, which stands for Alcoholics Anonymous for the listeners, I assume that you didn't navigate through all this alone, Harbinder. Yeah. So what exactly was the role that mentors, counselors, um, therapists, uh, etc., played in your transformation? I mean, it was huge. I, I, I mean, I tried lots of therapies like most of us do. You know, I read self-help books and all of that sort of stuff. And I, you know, I tried drinks, diaries and limiting the amount of drink or money that I took out, but none of that really worked. I mean, I started working with a life coach who was, uh, who was an alcoholic himself uh, and drug addict who I didn't know this until, you know, later on in our work together, but he, you know, he was clean and sober and it, it, it moved his career into life coaching. And, and Michael initially sent me to Al-Anon, which is like a sister fellowship for family members and loved ones who are affected by alcoholics and drug addicts. Um, you know, I spent six months complaining, you know, before I finally started to listen, you know, all I did was go to these meetings, complain about how awful my life was, but I wasn't actually doing any action about changing it. Um, and then obviously after this event on the 19th of September, you know, I, I, I basically, the Al-Anon meeting was in the same building as the AA meeting. So I just, uh, I just went across the corridor to, to, to AA and Alcoholics Anonymous was where I started my journey. You know, I couldn't believe that people felt and experienced life, you know, the way I did, you know, they suffered like me, they felt like me. they were now living good, honest lives and helping others. You know, their honesty was, it was astonishing. Um, you know, I found a sponsor and, and my sponsor then became sort of my guide in recovery. And he took me through, you know, the 12 steps of recovery and um, he helped me so much. You know, I, I, he's still in my life today. Um, he showed me a lot of tough love, but also a lot of patient support, empathy and compassion. You know, and he, he's, he was there every step of the way. Mm, amazing. I recall you, Harbinder, telling me that you got into fitness at a very young age and once could bench press 100 kilos as a young teenager. Now, I'm a fitness addict and very much into regular workouts, although I must admit 100 kilos as always and probably will remain a tall order for me. <laughs> and I keep advocating exercise as a remedy for many issues in life, not the least yeah. of which is physical fitness and mental, mental health. How did you get into fitness at that young age? And what is the effect of that on your physical and mental health? You know, I, I mean, I started, you know, weight training at nine years old. Um, 
you know, I watched a really horrific traumatic event at our house and I knew I had to get strong to stop what was going on. You know, I waited outside the gym. You know, I, I was too shy to go in and, and, and Brian, who was the gym manager at the time, came out and spoke to me. You know, he asked me what I was doing there and I, and I said, I've come to train. And, um, you know, he simply just said, you know, you better come in then, you know, and he really took me under his wing. You know, he introduced me to the guys in the gym and they all made me feel welcome. You know, I trained with Brian every week for the next five years, every Saturday. And, and as I got stronger and bigger, my confidence grew. You know, I felt happy, but still had all this underlying sadness from my trauma. Um, during my teenage years, you know, I got into martial arts. I tried judo, karate and kung fu. Before sort of finding my place really in, in Thai boxing, I really enjoyed Thai boxing. I like, you know, the use and the movement, um, you know, of all the body parts. And, um, and it, was, it was great. You know, for me, I really, really enjoyed those, those years training. Um, and then, you know, as my addiction started to ramp up, you know, to, you know, alcohol and weed and girls and stuff, my training sort of slowed down really. Um, and then I got back into weights on and off, you know, throughout my 20s. But my addiction was in full flow, you know, so it was never really consistent. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, my, my weight ballooned and it would go up and down. Um, and then I started a great, uh, you know, training again, really, in my late 20s. You know, I lost weight and felt good again. Um, but my outcome, again, was still dragging me down. Um, but once I got sober in September 2007, you know, I was 30 years old at the time, I stepped up my fitness, you know, physical well-being is essential, you know, for overall health, you know, in my opinion, it's very important, we strike a balance, you know, my fitness journey during my recovery has been on and off across lots of different sports, um, I think now I sort of found my flow with weights and MMA, uh, and I like, you know, I really enjoy the variety of sort of pad work, you know, kettlebells and hip training. But I also do, you know, also do other stuff. You know, uh, I do yoga, um, you know, I'll, I'll do stretching, I'll do, you know, just real simple, basic stuff that, you know, j just helps with my my mental state as well. You know, it really sort of helps me yeah, settle in the morning to get prepped for the day ahead. Yeah, I'm always amazed by the fantastic effects on your mindset of exercise, especially in the early mornings um, mm. and hit training or things like that, really takes your energy levels to a different uh, different level. Um, mm. Now, I gather had been that most of the time that the root cause of addiction is stress, anxiety, or depression. Right? Mm. Uh, people then turn to drugs or alcohol to take their mind away from the harsh realities of life. Now, I'm curious about mental health issues that happen in adults. Many adults yeah. whose stress, anxiety, or depression become prominent in adulthood probably got it because of childhood issues that were aggregated, uh, aggravated by what happened later in childhood. Now, what are the five actions that an employed adult who doesn't have access to a therapist can take to reduce the risk of this aggravation and no subsequent severe mental health issues. I mean, I mean, the, the tips I'm going to share with you are, are, are kind of the things that I I share with you know my private clients. You know, uh, you know, it all starts with gratitude. You know, at the moment we're seeing you know we're seeing a lot of stuff all over the world. You know, there's wars going on all over the place, and 
you know, start with five things that you're grateful for, you know, five things every day and write these down, you know, because we can we can jump them about in our head, but we need to have them on paper, you know, and it could be simple things, you know, like this morning, my list had, you know, I've got running water, you know, a large percentage of the world doesn't, you know, there's still people that, you know, are going, you know, in parts of India, it's still like that. You know, and and actually, you know, the simple things, running water, you know, I've woke up in a, in a bed. You know, how many people are sleeping rough? You know, that that's gratitude is huge. You know, looking for this stuff, I've got a, you know, a fridge full of food. Simple things, you know, that, that actually when we when we sit there and reflect, you know, actually we, we're, we're quite lucky, you know. But also, you know, something else that's huge, you know, probably... You know, for me, number two is all about what you're feeding your mind. You know, if you're not feeding it inspirational stories and, you know, the, the Internet's full of great inspiration and, you know, to feed your mind positive, hopeful stuff. You know, look for people that have overcome, you know, their struggles. Learn from them. You know, read about people who inspire you. Read about happiness. Read about spiritual growth. You know, learn about money. You know, learn, learn, learn. It's massive. You know, people, we're so lucky with the internet. We've got all this information at our fingertips. You know, get active, like you said. Spend time walking. You know, walking, running, climbing, training. All of this stuff releases really good chemicals to the brain. You know, also food. You know, how many of us, I think all these years on, you know, we still don't know what a healthy diet looks like for lots of people. You know, learn about food and the effects that it has on your mind and your body and your mental state. You know, learn about that. And, and there is lots of free resource out there if you look for it. You know, there's lots of groups where people get open and share their tips and, you know, get honest about their stories and about living happy and peacefully, you know, in their lives today, you know, and, Join those groups. There are groups all over the place. You know, we have the, the access to online groups now, Facebook groups, you know, Instagram groups, all of that stuff, which is out there and, and readily available. And a lot of it's free, you know, so, so really sort of throw yourself into that. Mm, true. I was on the website of the UK-based uh, The Haynes Clinic which mm. specializes in drug and alcohol de-addiction. And, and I know yes. you work with them. Mm. Um, now, there was a short video where this lady explained that willpower alone doesn't work in such situations. Yeah. You need to be happy with yourself. Mm. I also read on some websites that alcohol and drugs fundamentally rewire your brain in a way that yeah. keeps you hooked. Now, I found this all extraordinarily insightful because in the past, I have, for example, simply believed that the conventional wisdom, which is that most of the time you can think or will your way out of an addiction or depression, which of course is not the case. What in your opinion are the top five myths that revolve around mental health issues among adults today? Yeah, this, I mean, we are slowly you know, moving towards a more understanding society, but you know, there, there is still work to do you know, the, 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 I would say that the most common myths I hear will, will, you know, will be mental health only affects certain types of people. You know, mental health can affect anyone. 
you know, due to the nature of our uniqueness, we see the world through our own unique eyes, right? So, you know, just because, you know, I'm living in a place, you know, and I've got, you know, servants and nice cars and nice things, you know, but if I feel, you know, my mother could do more, my father could do more, my brother and sister doesn't like me or whatever it is, you know, I can, you know, I can start to believe things that are negative from my mind, you know, and actually, you know, this causes insecurity, self-worth and self-esteem. So, you know, mental health will, will affect, it can, can affect anyone, you know, so, so that's really, really important. You know, mental health will be you, with you forever. You know, lots of people, you know, mental health will be with you forever until you do something about it. You know, the only way out is going in. For me, you know, that's the way I understand it. We have to go into the trauma to heal that. You know, this has certainly been my experience. You know, we need to go to the root to fix the trauma. You know, otherwise, you know, it stays with you and you probably will be affected for life. You know, and other things like antidepressants, you know, antidepressants will solve your problem. Personally, I believe antidepressants are often a quick fix, you know, but but not a long term solution. I believe global mental health services are hugely, you know, under resourced. So giving people a pill to rush them out the office or, you know, the, the clinic has become the norm. You know, eventually the pain and the trauma will start to come through medication. And then what do you do? You know, um, another one, you know, and this is a real kind of bugbear for me, but, you know, all counselling and coaching is the same. This, this, this isn't true. You know, I prefer to work as a coach because it allows me more directiveness with my clients, you know, than their recovery. It, it basically means we can go more directly to trauma and start healing a lot quicker. You know, I would say 70% of the clients I work with have either been on or are still on antidepressants uh, and they've previously tried some form of counselling and they're still stuck in the same place, you know, and they're often really sceptical, but, you know, three or four sessions into our work and they can see, you know, tangible results and their experience is completely different. Uh, and finally, you know, for me, I get so frustrated when people or so-called professionals put restrictions on clients uh, on, on what they can achieve. You know, your mental health is a phase and you can overcome and move towards, you know, a happy, content and beautiful life. You know, you decide what you want and we can work together to get you there. You know, don't be restricted in your life. You know, you, you weren't created to be restricted. I genuinely believe that. Hmm. Coming to solutions, it seems that one of the proven ways to combat mental health issues is to do something that you love doing, right? Enjoying yourself can help beat stress. So if you do an activity, you enjoy it, probably means you're good at it and achieving something boosts your self-esteem. And, and we don't have to go far, of course, to see real life examples. Let's take yeah. your case where you obviously love helping people make their way out of addiction and mental health problems and you make a decent living out of it. Now, this situation where your work not only makes you fulfilled, but also provides a decent livelihood, quite surprisingly evades many people. Uh, yeah. How did you come to be in this sweet spot, for lack of a better word? And what can we all learn from this? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, you know, I, I believe we all have gifts. 
you know, as children, we're all innocent and we're created to achieve great things, I believe. Unfortunately, dysfunction in our life, you know, schooling, um, you know, and external pressures force us into careers that don't fit, you know, relationships that don't work, and unfortunately, lives that are not fulfilling. You know, I feel very, very grateful and fortunate to have found my flow. You know, Steve Kotler talks about and lots of people are talking about the flow of life. You know, life felt like a struggle for so many years and I was running on peer pressure, self-will to make the world fit around me. And today it's just simply not like that. You know, today I wake up grateful for another day to do the job my creator, you know, intended, you know, for me. And, and it feels very natural, you know. When we, you know, when we swim with the current of life, you know, life just unfolds and it takes you know, all the external pressures away. You know, I feel deeply connected today. And for a long time, you know, I felt on the outside, you know. And, and for me, look, you know, I think, you know, my success is down to, you know, my pain is my greatest asset. You know, I believe this is true for us all. You know, however, most people unfortunately live in pain because they're not inspired to change. You know, we can all change and work towards the greater good, you know, and, and that becomes part of the, you know, a global purpose to really make a difference, you know, and, 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 you know, I can't change a billion people overnight, but I can change a few. And if they want to get inspired and they want to move into careers and use their pain as a, as a way of changing, then that's a good thing, right? Because, you know, one by one by one, we can start to make a difference on a global scale. So, you know, I hope that sort of answers what, what you know, what you're asking. Mm, it does. Uh, at the outset of this podcast, I did say it was about careers. And although we didn't specifically talk about careers, mental health is intimately connected to career success. So let's move to an issue which is specific to careers, which is that, when we look around, we see a lot of people getting stuck in a miserable career. And mm. I suspect they do that often because, among other things, the crap career pays the bills and confers some amount of respect in the eyes of society. Mm. These are also among the reasons why the job can be tough to quit. Absolutely, yeah. What are the successful career pivots that you have seen and why were they successful? I mean, you know, my story in itself is one, but, but you know, I've, I've, I've been very fortunate whilst working with clients to see some amazing things. You know, I had a, a really successful, you know, deputy head teacher at the school. You know, he, he loved the job and felt absolutely trapped by, you know, the monotony and, you know, the UK schooling system and the total bureaucracy that comes with that. And he just felt his hands were tied and he didn't feel he... He was being supported and therefore he couldn't really support, you know, or was trying to support, you know, the kids he was teaching, you know, just felt restricted in his career options and, and, and you know, basically, you know, just at a, at a real block in his life. And we ended up working together and we established some of his dreams, you know, some of the goals that he had for his life. And he's now, you know, completely retrained, you know, he's now works as a ceramic tiler. You know, he's transitioned into that new new occupation, which already earns him, you know, a, a pay rise on his current job as a deputy head. He's got freedom to work anywhere in the world because ceramic tiling is ceramic tiling in the UK, 
you know, in Dubai, in India, wherever, you know, it's the same stuff. And, you know, he works the hours that, that work, you know, around him and not a lot of additional hours, you know, marking and, you know, all of that sort of stuff that, you know, that comes with teaching. And, you know, he feels so much happier in himself and, you know, and it's just great. You know, every time I see him now, you know, we, we still have catch up calls, you know, he's smiling, he's happy, he's content. And, you know, he, his dream was never to become a ceramic tiler, but, He's ended up in this career and, and actually, you know, but it's allowed him to live the other dreams that he had, you know, the freedom and the flexibility, the travel, all of that stuff that, that typically comes with that, you know, so that that's awesome. And, you know, <clears throat> I had another client, you know, who was, who was recently divorced, you know, her dependence was on her ex-husband, you know, he provided her with the financial support. And, and, you know, and, but, but as a result of that, he also controlled, you know, and she was crippled by this, you know, she felt, you know, she had no options, you know, what was she going to do? Because, you know, she would be financially controlled by him for the rest of her life. You know, we discussed her skill set, you know, what she had gone through recently and how a journey would, would benefit, you know, lots of other people, you know, that were going through, you know, particularly females going through separations or divorce, you know, and she's currently training to be a relationship coach so she can use her own experience to support clients on how to work, you know, through their relationship struggles or help them to choose to separate, you know. You know, and she has referrals set up with solicitors and accountants who she worked with personally whilst going through her own pain, you know, so you know, she gets, you know, feed-in tariffs for that and all the rest of it. And, you know, it, it's great. You know, she's she's kind of gone from someone that had no hope to someone that actually has a lot of hope and has some dreams and has an idea of where she's heading in life. Uh, and finally, I mean, this is, you know, one of my favourites, you know. <clears throat> well, you know, while I'm, you know, I work at a rehab centre, but we had a, a crack cocaine addict, you know, come into our rehab about three years ago. You know, he, uh, two years ago, he started a four-year counselling course to become addictions counselling. You know, he's inspired by what we did there. And, you know, he could, he's, he, it blows me away. You know, today he's happy, he's clean. You know, he's a father to his kids. He's present in their life. You know, and he's breaking that cycle of addiction in his family. You know, and he's, he's hoping to change lives using his, his own journey and of, of inspiration and hope, you know. And for me, I think in a nutshell, you know, for anyone who's stuck, you know, side hustle, you know, we're hearing Gary Vee and lots of people talking about side hustles, you know, start to do that towards your calling, you know, and you can one day develop a life that's fulfilling and inspiring. You know, we all have something the world needs. We just need to find out what it is. You know, I, I, I really, really hope, you know, that, that this, this touches and inspires you to start your journey. You know, most people will never, never start. You know, and um, and I definitely think that you know, you know that, that if the, the sooner we get on this new path, the sooner we start to heal, and the sooner we start to get happy and more fulfilled. So, you know, it's uh, it's a real, real pleasure to be with you guys today. Arbinder Sangha, thank you so much for your time, for your raw honesty and your powerful insights. I, I love your transformation journey and what you're doing to help others navigate the same path. 
and uh, may the force be with you. <laughs> Thank you, Bernard. It's been a real pleasure, and um, I, I really, really hope and pray someone someone got something from from what I shared. You know, it's it, it. Sometimes we just need to hear, you know, someone else's story for us to really kind of click into gear and start the own transformation in our own lives. So I really appreciate this opportunity, and uh, and thanks again. Podcast is brought to you by the Real Finance Mentor. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word. And be sure to check out more exclusive content on therealfinancementor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binod Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on therealfinancementor.com, and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events, and blogs. Till the next time, onwards and upwards.